let me welcome you as well uh, this morning. Uh, if you did not get a Ruth booklet when you came in, it's either this or purple. I've got the black one. Um, I want to invite you to get up now and go out back and grab one. I know in first service, I had a number of people jump up. People are a little embarrassed to get up and go out. Do not be. Just jump up. Go grab a few maybe for your row. They're on the table in the back. We always... When we can do a book where we can get these books, and, and this is, you know, the book of Ruth, a shorter book, we always want these to be in your hands. Now, this is not a substitute for you bringing your Bible. So I want to remind you of that, that, that what I love about this one, I got the black one, by the way, because I love these little faint lines on this side that you can write on. That's how I use it. But you, know, you can mark this up. You can take notes in this. That's why we want you to have it. But, but we also want you to have your Bible, because as we'll see this morning, when, we, when we're studying any part of the Bible, we're, we're going to always go to other parts of the Bible that show us where this particular story fits in, the, the story of redemption God, and, and God's revelation of himself and how the truths that we learn in this particular book align with the truths in other parts of our Bible. So let's always, I want to encourage you to always have your Bible with you as well. Speaking of your Bible, I've got my Bible open, and when I open it, I find the book of Ruth at the back end of the book of Judges and just before the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's one of the shortest books in, in, in the Bible. Uh, it, it's a book in which uh, God never speaks you never hear God speak in this book, and yet it illustrates for us one of the most essential and fundamental uh, biblical doctrines that, that, uh, that, we, that we need to know, we need to hold, and that, that it's, the, it's the ground of our hope. It's the ground of our hope, this, this particular doctrine. Now, it, it, I'll say it this way first. It illustrates, this, this book, how... God works, okay? So, so, so you think about it, it's a 3,000-year-old book and we're gonna watch things happen and we're gonna see how is it that God works out his purposes and plans, okay? To his glory and in his people and in his world. Now, you'll note we, we're calling the series Ordinary Providence, the book of Ruth, two, two words here, ordinary. The book itself is about ordinary people in, in ordinary places doing ordinary things. They're trying to scratch out a life, get a meal and make it to the next day. Just, just living in a fallen world, these people. So ordinary people. But underneath the story, we're gonna watch things happen and whatnot. There's this thread under the story and that would be the thread of God's providence, how he works, what he does and how he works. Um, this story of Ruth, um, there, there aren't any miracles really in the book of Ruth. It, uh, you, know, no, you know, the people that get sick in Ruth die. The people that die in Ruth stay dead. There's, there's no resurrections. It, it's uh, as Carl introduced for us this morning, even our, our Stet and Carl take, having the courage to stand up here with a piano and lead us in that toned down way is this sense of, it's the sense of, it's, it gives us the sense of Ruth. It's a, it's a hard day. Um, if you've read The Grapes of Wrath and, and you've kind of, you know, the, the classic Steinbeck book and you've tasted the dust bowl in a sense and you've heard the cries of hungry children and you've watched people be displaced and homeless and travel and not, things not go the way you hope they would go. It, it, it's like you read that book and you go, I would never wish that life on anyone. 
Well, you're getting to the core of Ruth's story. And, and you may say, well, surely of the 66 books, there was a better book we could choose than this one, right? This is, but there, there's not. And, and truly, as we prayed about it, we, we sense the Spirit saying, this book at this time, in our church, in our place, in history, in, in, in our context, even within the world. I'll tell you on the front end that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a hard book. Um, and yet it's loaded with hope. But you, boy, we'll have to work in a sense, you know, we won't see it apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, but you work for the hope in the book of Ruth. Uh, Rob and I have talked very seriously about this. In fact, Rob set up a, a conference call that he and I are going to have here in the next week or so with someone who's thought a lot about this. And we just want to pick that person's brain on the providence of God and how do you shepherd a people to, to, uh, to hold God's providence biblically. I've always said this and I've said it to you and I said it to someone, per, I, you know, one-on-one -on -one I'll say this, but I've said, if you can read the Old Testament and not be troubled by the things God does, I don't know that you've read it carefully enough. Really. And I'm going to say the same thing about our study through Ruth. Well, you think of providence, this theolo this, it's a theological term that, um, that it, I said earlier, it, it, it speaks of how God works out his purposes and plans. To, to say it a couple different ways, in the most simplest way, we would say God's providence is the doctrine that teaches God is in control. Okay, so that, let, let's start there. We'll put all these together in a way, but God is in control. And, and you know, it says easy. I'm gonna tell you something. If you wanna pause and really think about what you're saying when you say it, it lives hard. And you're gonna see that this morning and you'll see it through our whole study through the book of Ruth. Uh, I don't know that we'd find a better definition of providence than that that was hammered out by uh, theologians, you know, back in the 1600s, English and Scottish theologians, as they defined it in the uh, Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism. You know, there's the Westminster Confessions, which is bigger, and then there's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And catechism is just, you know, question and answer, question and answer. It's how we, how the early church taught, how we taught each other doctrines. And so uh, I used to do this with, uh, with my son. Uh, we'd have breakfast at Cracker Barrel, and we'd pull out the Shorter Catechism, and I'd just say, what is chief in the man? Man, chief in it's cool if I got, you know, so question 11, though. Uh, what is God's work? What are God's works of providence? I have it up here on the screen, and I want you to see it. It says, what are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the question and I want you to say out loud, and I'll lead us, but I want us to say it out loud. It's like we're doing the catechism right now. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. You know, I hope that by the end of our study through Ruth, we'll do that and, and, and it will come. I, I just, flew, I want you just to read it now, but I hope it'll come from a deeper place by the end of Ruth. I mean, from 
the heart down here because we've been shaped by Ruth's story. Now, when you when you leave that up there, because I want you to know when, when you read it, if, if if I think if you're honest, we can say it, and this part I say it, it says easy lives hard, but you know, when you read that, I mean, do you understand what it says? I mean, it says all. And all <laughs> their actions. And I throw questions, you know, this is where you stand and you go, well, well, wait a minute, what about, the, what about the abuse that I experienced as a child? Providence? Is the breakup of my marriage, my divorce, the shattering of my family, providence? Is that, so that's God's providence? How, where, do, where do I put the death of my child? What about Alzheimer's, cancer, just disease? Is God behind the natural disasters that kill thousands in one fell swoop, destroy homes and livelihoods? The injustice, man's inhumanity to man through the, through the centuries? I mean, and what about my free will? What about my choices? I mean, I'm not a puppet, am I? I mean, you're saying I'm just, God just moves me through the world in his providence and my choices don't matter. What about choices evil people make or people make that affect people who didn't do anything and I'm suffering because of that? What, what do you talk, what, wait a minute, you know, put that in your providence pipe and smoke it. You know, it's like, whoa, you don't give me God's, I, I, I get that, I really do. And I want you to know as we go through the book of Ruth, we're gonna, we're gonna go at those. I, I don't know that you're gonna get a satisfactory answer and that'll be part of the journey, but we're not gonna ignore that those questions are there, y'all. That's why Rob and I went, oh my gosh, we're gonna step into this. And yes, we are. And by God's spirit, we're gonna pray that he opens our eyes to see what exactly we mean when we say and how it, how it shapes our life, God's providence. Let me give you a phrase that we'll use throughout, you know, perhaps throughout the study. And, it, and it's something that we've got to bring to the book of Ruth in particular if we're going to properly understand it and then apply it. And it's this very simple phrase. There's more than meets, you finish it, the eyes. There's more than meets the eyes. We're not gonna get into allegorizing or, or, or you know, mishandling God's word, but I'm telling you in Ruth's story, we read the story, but then there's more than meets the eye under this story. As you would expect, it shows up in the very first verse of the book. And today, guess how many verses we're gonna cover? Just the one, just the one. And out of that one verse, we're gonna lay first the historical context. So we gotta go, what, you know, when is this story happening? What's happening in the world? You know, we gotta know that. And then I'm gonna walk you through a super quick four-part summary of the four chapters. Then I'm gonna give you two points of, of application for us. So let's start God's word for us today. We begin Ruth chapter one, just verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
in the days when the judges ruled. Now, because I've got my Bible open, I can do this. If you've got the booklet, you won't be able to do it. But see, in our, in our Bible, it goes Judges, Ruth. And when you go, well, okay, what were the days of Judges like? The best summary is the last verse of Judges. And so it's just simple. I, so I go over here to Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, and we read, in those days, the days of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what's going on. Now, now let's, go, let's, let's peel that back a bit to understand it. In the book of Judges, um, this is how this plays out. And, and the, the, the book of Judges is, revolves around seven cycles. So there's, there's seven cycles that happen. Seven times this happens. Now I'm gonna put this up here. I, I, I wrote it earlier and Joe's gonna throw the slide. And they go like this. So the top of the, it begins with the top of the cycle. It begins with disobedience. Now people put d different words and different numbers of these, but this is fundamentally, you can't read a commentary or, or, or explanation of Judges and not see these. Historically, Israel has, has come out of Egypt, years in the wilderness, and y'all, they're in the land. Joshua has put them in the land. The land has been allotted to the tribes. So in a sense, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta feel the, the sense of that they, they got there. You know, it's like we're there. We're in the promised land. The Judges covers a 200-year period. No sooner are they in the land than this begins. It's like, you're, we're there. This is awesome. And disobedience, unbelief, belief in idols, marrying those in the land who God said, don't marry them and don't follow their gods. God's people did the very thing. It was rooted in unbelief. And then they go to discipline because God said he would discipline them if they don't, if they don't follow him. And generally that was gonna be the enemy is gonna get you. And you know what? You're gonna be under bondage. You're gonna be, you're gonna be in bondage to, to your enemies. So, disobedience, discipline, desperation. God, help us. <laughs> we rejected you. We rebelled. Would you help us? They're, they're killing me. I'm, I'm dying here. And God cry out. And then God says a deliverer. This is the judge. Now, when you hear this judge, you got to think not courtroom judge, but the judges were, were this, I, this is not a perfect analogy, but it helps us. It, they're, the, they're the superhero in a way. It, you know, they, they show up on the scene. They crush their enemies, you know. It's, it's interesting that the judges in these, in these cycles of disobedience, et cetera, et cetera, they, the first, they're all flawed, okay? None of these are pristine. The first one's, you know, I think Othniel, but, but, but they're okay. You know, it's like, okay, that's good. Can I tell you from the first to the last, it gets dirty and ugly. And, and you, you, know, last, you know the last one is? Samson. I mean, you know, we kind of sometimes put him as a hero of the faith. And I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, God used him, but that man had serious issues and, and sin, quite frankly. So he's even the, the judge. So think about it. The cycle, the cycle goes like this. It just goes 
deeper and darker. Now, I want you to look at that. Let's all just look at this. Okay, this is amazing. Does that, does that look familiar to you? Like, do you look at that and go, hmm, I see that somewhere else. Anybody? <laughs> right? Have you ever looked in the mirror? <laughs> right? Or have you, have you ever just thought about your journey of faith? That's mine. It's yours. You know, see, in this, in this way, Judges gives us a picture, and Ruth is going to give us a picture of, of how, do we, how do we walk in genuine faith and break the cycle, right? Because no sooner do they go from deliverance and, and they go to delight, which is God's peace, crush the enemies, whoa, it's all good again. There's another arrow. You know what? And it doesn't circle around and go back to peace. It goes right back to disobedience. And so Ruth, in a sense, gives us a picture. How do we step out of that cycle in faith? Well, when, when, when people, you know, when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, think about it. It devolves into how many people can you convince to see things the way you see it? And you get all those people together and you, your tribe kills all the other people who don't see it the way you see it. Nothing has changed in 3,000 years, and I'm not being facetious. Tribal ideologies. And do you know what happens when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes? It actually feels good at first, right? It actually is like, yeah, oh yeah, but what does it devolve into? It devolves into everyone's wrong, it devolves into us against them. And you know what becomes the, the, the most, you know what becomes the most uh, precious resource? Power. And then people will do anything to get power. Man, I'm telling you, this is like a history lesson for us, is it not? And even a lesson for us today. Okay, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In, in, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, this is not a trick question. There was no earthly human being king in Israel. But I'm going to ask this, and you know the answer. But was there a king in Israel? What's the answer? Yeah, we're all nodding our heads going, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is king. But when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, I'm telling you, there's no room for a king. Not even the God who created us and made us and put breath in our lungs and gave us life. There's no room for that if I'm doing that which is right in my own eyes. So Ruth, this story, this story we're gonna read over the next 13 weeks is happening in days of division and strife and conflict. People are not following him. People are tied to their personal ideologies Fear and confusion and death. It's, it's just clinging to them like humidity on a summer day around here. You see that? This is the context of the story of Ruth. Back to chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, got that, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab and his wife, he and his wife and his two sons. We always know when we're studying, you know, that we, we go, okay, we hear that, but how did the original audience hear it? 
Like, like when they read that, what did they see? What's happening in their hearts as they're reading this? And, and, and when we get back there, we see this, this, this passage is just dripping with irony. Just, just dripping with irony. Because there was a famine in the land. Now, now you got to go back and, and, and go, okay, wait, wait, wait. This is the promised land. So when God promised the land to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, uh, and, when, and when God spoke to the people of the land as he came out of Egypt, he said, We're gonna, I'm going to take you to a land that is, and there's a phrase he used, it is flowing with what? <laughs> yeah, and it's not literally flowing with milk and honey. It just means there's a lot of food there. There's everything you need there. Wait, there's a famine in the, there's no, there's now no food in the land flowing with milk and honey. A man of Bethlehem in Judah, the word Bethlehem, the name of that town, you know this from Christmas, it means house of bread. So do you see the ironies in this? Wait, 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 wait. In the land that's flowing with milk and honey, it, in the city of bread, there's no bread? What's wrong with this story? That's what's going on. This is how the Hebrews told their stories. It's building this tension. What's wrong with this story? And then I'm just gonna grab this last word. In the country of Moab, there's a whole lot that can be said here why Moab's no good. <laughs> you don't wanna do that, but I'm just gonna grab one because I think it ties well to our story. When Israel was coming out of Egypt, they had to pass through different lands. And they had to pass through Moab. And something happened when they were passed through Moab that is so egregious to God that God says, look, when you get in the land, no Moabite can come in the temple. Now that's rough, that's extreme. God, but you know, Israel's to be a blessing to the whole. Now you gotta remember, this is redemptive history. So things that are happening here, it's not the fullness of Christ. It's just at that time, as God's preparing the world for Christ, no Moabite gets near me. That's basically what God said. And you go, what did they do? Deuteronomy 23, verse four, God says, for they, the Moabites, did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So a Jewish man from the land of milk and honey and the town that is the house of bread, he's going to Moab, the people who didn't even give Israel bread and water on their journey. There's something really wrong with this picture. That's the idea in these ironic statements. Just one more, and it's not verse one. I'm just gonna take the first, sent, first phrase of verse two. Rob will pick this up next week. The name of the man was Elimelech. And I'm only grabbing it because, because of the ironic nature of this. The, Elimelech means my God is king. I mean, this is a man who every time someone said his name, was, they were saying, my God is king. Hey, my God is king. Hey, my God is king. I mean, you just go, wait, that's his name. And, and suddenly my God is king is going to Moab for bread. This is, 
convoluted. This ought not be. Now, I'm going to say this. Um, we don't, the author doesn't give us, doesn't say what was in Elimelech's heart. So I want to be careful in this because I don't know. And, and, and I don't think there's a man or a woman in the room that if your children were starving, like they are here, okay, like they are here. We, you know, we, we know hungry or whatever, but my goodness, starving, like dying of hunger. I don't know there's a, a, a man or woman in the room that wouldn't do anything to get my kids food. You know, and I, you know I'd steal. I mean, I, I'm just telling, you know, you just, you just go, I'll ask God to forgive me, but I would, you do whatever to feed your kids. So I want to be so careful on reading in his motive. We don't, we don't see the motive. How that said, if we just take the story as it's being told, the clues of the writer are, are clearly signaling to the reader that the reader's response is, don't go to Moab. Oh my goodness. You know, it's like, don't go there. Don't go there. That's, that's where the thrust of the narrative seems to take us. Okay, that's the historical. We gotta, all, and we're gonna keep that in mind as we take this story apart and understand it. Let me give you a quick overview. I'll put this on the screen in a moment. I'm gonna take, there's four chapters and I've already said that it's the providence of God that runs through the story. And so I wanna outline it using the providence of God. And this is real simple, just, you know, we'll come back to this, but chapter one is God's providence is hard. Rob will pick this up next week. We're actually be in it for the next two weeks. So you know the story of Ruth. They go to Moab. Uh, three husbands die. The first chapter ends with three widows. Now we say that and we go, that's bad. But the original audience would hear that and go, that's as bad as it could be. It's, that's horrendous. Three widows in a foreign land with no food. This, this is a hopeless situation. That's why I say God's providence is hard. Chapter two, I say God's providence is hard to see. They, they, now Naomi and Ruth, here's two of our three main characters, Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, go back to Bethlehem. And, uh, you know, when they get back to Bethlehem, you know, Naomi, you know, has already changed her name because she tells her friends when she gets back, I, 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 w I went away full, but I've come back empty. Don't call, me Mar don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. So she's, she's bitter. God's been against me. Um, in chapter two, we, we kind of see God's providence beginning to kind of pop its head up, you know, as a little, like, almost like a little plant breaking the surface. You can barely see it. It's, it's the time of the barley harvest. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. Hey, there's a guy named Boaz. That's a, that's a real, you know, you don't have the whole story yet, but it's these little hints of providence. Uh, Boaz is a third main character, uh, but Ruth, can't, uh, Naomi can't see him. And so I just make the point, you know, that we'll just put it under this heading, God's providence is hard to see. Chapter three, God's providence works with your faith. Here in chapter three, I can't wait till we get to it. It's just fascinating. The whole story happens under the cover of darkness. And if we didn't know better, we'd kind of go, woo, that's a little, that's a little, apparently the movie Redeeming Love's got a little, gets a little hot and testy in there a bit, but the, the, it's that. It's, I'm just saying that, that it's like, well, that's a little, 
what, what's going on here with this man and woman? It's that kind of a thing. And we see it in this story. And we got to understand the context to go, no, 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 this is what's happening here, okay? This is where we unpack some of the, the cultural background. It's there that we, we, we understand that Boaz is a redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. We'll unpack that when we get to it. It's a major part of the story. But it shows Ruth taking some audacious steps of faith. So you go, wait, so, so our faith, our steps of faith matter in terms of God's providence. Yes, yes, it does. And then the last one, God's providence brings our good and his glory. We come to the fourth chapter. It's not really a conclusion. It's actually a beginning. It's, it's once again, you'll, I'll say this then when we get there, you hey, there's more than meets the eye here. Um, it shows, you know, these two widows now their life restored, redeemed in, in ways they could have never imagined. Now, I'm going to show you another outline of the four chapters with a word added to each of these. Because if that, I put it that way to say, look, it's God's providence, God's providence, God's providence, God's providence. I want to put a word with each one to show you this is what we'll wrestle with. And this is, this is how we see the story informing us of what faith looks like. What does a Christian life mean? What does a Christian life, how, how do we experience it as, as God's providence is at work in our lives? So this way, I'll put it, chapter one, God's providence is hard, and I use the word weeping. There is a lot of crying in chapter one. Um, it is... Uh, I, I say that um, I was going to use the word wailing because there is wailing but I thought some of you would kind of go ah, I don't know that's a little too much <laughs> but I assure you it wasn't that wouldn't be too much for what happens in the story say God's providence is hard to see and I'm putting the word working um, it, it, you know there's more then meets the eye and it is eyes of faith that see the providence of God in circumstances that look totally out of his control. If not, the opposite of what we think a God that we know would do. See, we go, God can't, no, 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 I can't. This is the part that we're gonna bump up against. That's gonna challenge our own faith. God's providence works with your faith. I put the word waiting you're going to see in chapter three that this phrase pops up. You're going to have to wait. Honey, wait, and we'll see what. And is that not a part of our journey of faith? It, you know, faith is not, it's mine. I've got the problem solved. No, faith is wait and watch God work on your behalf. And the last one is worshiping. Because indeed, if I tried to put a word on what happens in chapter four, this, you know, the, the, the coming of a child, the, the, the blessing of God's hand upon them. It, it, they're worshiping. They're, they've, now, they've, now, they've now moved from weeping to worship. And what I want you to see in this, when I put, why I put this up here, is the path from weeping to worship. It goes through the working and the waiting. You don't, go, you don't go from weeping to worship. It's not, that's not the journey of faith. There's the working. There's a lot more to it. And there's the waiting. And there's a lot more to that. 
then we get to the worship. But we surely get there. We've talked about that in Philippians. I got two things I want you to consider. Two, just two principles, two, two, two insights we'll grab and say, okay, I want, you to, I want you to hold on to these and consider what the Lord may be saying to you in it. The first is this, I've already touched on it, but I just wanna say it in a statement. Number one, no one gets through this life without weeping. No one gets through this life without weeping. If, if, if you think that coming to faith in Jesus and now I'm gonna follow Jesus, you know, is gonna, is, is gonna make the way easy. Uh, you, you, it's totally off kilter. It's totally out of the biblical context. You come to faith in Jesus and, and we begin to read our letters in the New Testament and we recognize and, and you've, now you've chosen a path of suffering. You've chosen a path that's gonna hurt. You've chosen the path, if you're going to follow Jesus, you will experience what Jesus experienced. If, if you are at a place in life where you go, Lord, you know, there's really nothing, nothing that breaks my heart, nothing I'm really weeping about. And again, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know you, but I would say this, I, regardless of your, you know, your strength finders or your Enneagram number, whatever you may be, your personality, you know, I'm just not a crying person. I'm just going to tell you you may not have the tears, but no one gets through this life without, a, without brokenness. It, it would just be pure denial of, the, of God's revelation and of life experience. The second thing I want you to consider is this. The providence of God that crushes us is the providence of God that gives us life. The providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. I, and again, you remember I said we read the catechism question about God's works of providence, his most holy, wise, and pow powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. It's like, yeah, yeah, I can say it. But, but boy, if we deeply hold to it, then what we're saying is the providence of God that crushes is indeed the providence that gives us life. You cannot separate God's providence. You know, like there's, it's the good stuff. There's the bad stuff. You know, the good stuff is his providence and the bad stuff. Well, that's, that, no, 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 that God would never do that. Be careful of, 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 of going down that path. And again, I don't expect us to get it right away. And I don't know that we'll ever get, we won't even get it at the end of, of, um, our study through Ruth. I hope we get to a place where we can with humility and, and great trepidation go, God's providence is my only hope. And I don't fully grasp it. And it's terrifying. That would be a good place to be. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, God is speaking through Isaiah and speaking of the, the Savior he would send. He's speaking of Christ Jesus. 700 years before Christ, through his week of passion, and died on the cross. I want you to listen to Isaiah's words. In light of what we just walked through is this little overview of God's providence and Ruth. Speaking of Jesus, God said he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. 
He was despised and we did not care. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we would be made whole. He was whipped so that we would be healed. And it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief, other versions. And it was the Father's, and it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long, we're getting to the worship part now. He will have a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make possible for many to be counted righteousness, be counted righteous, which is anyone in this room or online who's put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is our model of one who wept, worked, waited, worshiped. Jesus, you know, this, 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 Rob will talk about this next week. The story of Ruth is the story of empty, I'm, I'm empty to the end full. What do we learn in Philippians about Jesus? Emptied himself to glory. No glory without the empty. No glory without the suffering. And it was the providence of God that crushed him. Not the devil. It was his father who crushed him. Surely William Cooper, it's C-O-W-P-E-R. Some say Cowper, but it's Cooper. Captured best what, what I'll call the paradox of providence. In his hymn from, this is 1773, God moves in mysterious ways, familiar to many, but this particular stanza. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Through Philippians, we talked about our, an, inv an invitation to joy, and, and all of this is tied to how do, we, how do we apply the scripture? Because we're not here just to learn it. We're here to live it. I want to invite you to think of it this way, and I'm going to call it an invitation to life for us, right, for right now. An invitation to life. Because in those hard places, whew, it's hard to see in that darkness. That's, oh, that's the way to life. No, 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 no. Life's over here. Where it's eat. No, no, no. That is the way to life. So, the, the invitation to life is there's more than meets the eye in God's providence. This is something I'm gonna, you're going to hear us say it over and over again. Therefore, I will. And I'm just going to invite you. This is individual because then I'm going to do something corporate. Individually, just, just 
whatever the Spirit says to you as you read that phrase, and I don't know where you are in your life, but it may, just whatever, how you read, you'd finish that. I'm gonna trust God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see God in the wreckage. I'm gonna, whatever. The Spirit will, will, will guide you. Ask the Spirit to show you. Just let that refrain go through your mind. There is more than meets the eye, because this is what I see, but there's more than meets the eye. Therefore, I will. What would this step of faith for you be? What would a statement of faith, just a statement of faith for you be as you finish that? Would you take a moment and do that right now? Carl, if you want to come on out here, join me. Now I'm going to ask you to consider a corporate application. When I say corporate, this is, you know, whatever you, however you finish that statement, that's between you and the Lord. This corporate invitation, I'm going to invite all of us as a community of faith online in the room to pray a prayer. So this is us together praying a prayer. Now this, this prayer was uh, written by Luke Brown, Chad Cates, Lindsay Mattingly, you know, worship leaders here. Um, it's a prayer of faith that, that when faced with, with God's hard providence, what gets us from weeping to worship is God's covenant faithfulness to his promises. What gets you from weeping to worship is, is, a, is a trust in God's covenant faithfulness to his promises. I'll say that God keeps his promises. This is what, would, what brings us to worship. Even when we can't quite see how that could be. This is the promise of the gospel. So I'm going to ask you to make this prayer your own. Carl will sing it over us and you can whisper it to believe it. <laughs>